Amen. Amen. And a big thank you to Susan for stepping up and leading today. We appreciate her so much and the work that she's put into this service. And we just thank you. And as always, thanks to uh, our choir, thanks to our praise singers and to our praise band and all who have a part in our service. Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. You know, since the inception of Christianity, it's not been unusual for Christians, followers of Christ, to experience some level of persecution. It comes in various forms and it ranges in severity. More than likely, at some point in your life, maybe several points in your life, you have experienced some level of persecution for your faith in Christ. It may have been at work, it may have been at school, it may have been somewhere else. But more than likely, you have experienced what you consider to be some type or form or level of, of persecution in your life. In our country as a whole, animosity seems to be growing towards Christians. A recent example over the last year, we've learned as kind of this scandal has been unfolded about the IRS targeting, first of all, of political groups, conservative political groups, uh, and then denying it and then ultimately admitting it and then landing somewhere kind of in the middle. But kind of in addition to that, there's also been a targeting of Christian organizations uh, that has been underway. In fact, I was watching uh, a few months ago Franklin Graham uh, uh, on a, uh, a news talk show talking about how that um, he is head of Samaritan's Purse and also head of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and talking about how the, the very same day in the mail that they had received notification, both organizations, uh, that they were being audited by the IRS, focus on the family, uh, the organization that James Dobson founded. All of these targeted, all of these audited uh, for no reason, uh, apparently, uh, at least no admitted reason, by the Internal Revenue Service. And so little by little, in fact, some may argue more than just a little bit, uh, we're seeing increasing persecution against the church and Christians in this day and time in which we live. The things we see today thus far, though, pale in comparison with what uh, others in the past have experienced and what uh, many predict is just a foreshadowing of the things to come right here in America and maybe the not-too-distant future. And I strongly agree with that. I believe we're headed to a time where Christians are going to increasingly experience persecution for their faith. Even in our world, even as recently as the news last week, we, we heard about what was going on in Iraq and about how Christians had to have water and food uh, airlifted to them because they had uh, went into the mountains to flee what? But persecution uh, for their faith and for their beliefs and their unwillingness to renounce the God whom they serve. Apart from America, though, we have been relatively 
I mean, in America, we've been relatively sheltered from what much of the rest of the world has experienced. In fact, we may look at him and we say, really, there hasn't been that much persecution against us as Christians. But what we don't see is that most of this has gone on in other places around the globe, and we've been kind of insulated from it all. According to a study by Regent University, nearly 164,000 Christians worldwide were martyred for their faith in the year 1999. That number rose to nearly 165,000 in the year 2000. With each passing year, the number is growing. More and more people are facing death because of their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and their unwillingness to renounce their faith in Him. It has been estimated that since the year A.D. 70, that more than 70 million people have been martyred for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a staggering number. Smyrna, the second church addressed among the seven churches in Revelations 2 and 3, came to be known as the persecuted church because of the horrible difficulties that it faced and also the fact that the Lord addresses it here as He does. And so over time as the church has studied about the Smyrna congregation, they've come to be labeled the persecuted church. Smyrna was an important seaport, about 35 or 40 miles north of Ephesus, which we looked at last time. The city received its name because of its chief export of myrrh, Smyrna was a noted center of science and medicine, according to various writings of the same period. Smyrna probably goes back to around 3000 B.C. The city was actually destroyed at one point, and it laid in ruins for over 300 years, and then in about 290 B.C. was actually rebuilt, and it was that rebuilt city that John actually addresses. The city was claimed to be the birthplace of the great epic poet Homer of Iliad and Odyssey fame. Now the city is the, is, is the only one of the seven churches still in existence today. Now it's not called Smyrna, but it's the Turkish city of Izmir. Uh, but the city itself actually exists today, the only one of the seven that does exist. Jesus' words are primarily words of comfort to this church. He had no real rebuke for them, only encouragement, strong words of encouragement, but no real rebuke. The church had power and it had purity on display. Persecution had purified and it had purged this church from sin and it had affirmed the reality of the members' faith. I think it's interesting, MacArthur makes an observation here when it comes to persecution, he says, quite bluntly, in fact. He says, hypocrites do not stay to face persecution because false believers do not want to endure the pain. Trials and persecution strengthen and they refine 
genuine saving faith. But they uncover and they destroy a false faith. And that's something for the church of our modern era to think about. How sincerely do we believe what we claim we believe? How genuine is our faith? How real is our faith? When we can go to church, when we can read our Bibles, when we can proclaim our own personal testimony without fear of persecution or imprisonment or death or anything like that, that's great. But what if we... Uh, what if we did face those things on a daily basis? How many Christians would there be then? How many true followers of Christ would we see if it cost that much to follow Jesus? Something important that we all need to face. Every one of us needs to look introspectively into our own hearts and think about that. What price am I willing to pay to follow Jesus Christ? I invite you with your Bible in hand to stand with me this morning as we look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and Jesus' words to the persecuted church. He writes, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works tribulation, and poverty. But you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Let us pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning and before this text, we pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, encourage our hearts, comfort our hearts, and Father, help us to live boldly for you in this generation. For it is in your name we ask. Amen. As you're seated. We notice first of all here, following the outline that I gave you last week, that really is the same outline that follows through all seven churches. The first thing is a description of Christ to this congregation based on the vision of the Son of Man from chapter 1. The glorified, exalted Lord Jesus is in view in this description. The first and the last who was dead and came to life again. Who else is that but Jesus? The one that man took and put to death, nailing him to a cross, Christ shedding his blood, and on the third day he rose again to prove that he wasn't just a man, but he was the divine Son of God who had power over life and death. The first and the last is an Old Testament title for God. And it's mentioned three times just in the book of Isaiah in 44.6, 48.12, and 41.4. A Christ equality and nature are also affirmed to be equal with God. He was in the beginning with God, John writes in John chapter 1, and all things were created through Him and without Him nothing was made that was made. 
The resurrection and the reference to the resurrection is affirmed as he reminds them that Christ was dead, literally dead, but then literally rose again from the grave. Not just as a spirit or as a ghost or a phantom, but literally bodily rose again from the dead to prove the power of God. This was a quick and to the point reminder of Jesus to help encourage them in this time of suffering and this time of great uncertainty. We like to be comforted when we're uncertain. We like assurance when we're feeling down or we're feeling blue or we're feeling like we're not accomplishing anything or we're feeling like uh, we're just not getting it done. We feel like we're going nowhere and it could be in any area of our life. It's always good to hear an encouraging word or to read something encouraging. We live in the day and time where, you know, you can get on Facebook, you can, you can uh, open your email box or you can, you can see a bumper sticker on a car. I mean, you can almost anywhere, out of the blue, you can see a word of encouragement. Now, there are a lot of discouraging things too. There's no doubt about it. But we see encouraging things, little sayings, maybe verses of Scripture all throughout our day. And it's always good. It's always uh, there to kind of pep us up or encourage us a little bit. It's a reminder here, though, to this church that God is eternal. While their suffering is only temporary. Do you know that? Nothing we face in this life by way of persecution or rejection or anything else, is permanent. It is all temporary. What is what is eternal? What is lasting and enduring? Only God. Our relationships with God. Scripture teaches us that no one is able to pluck us out of our Heavenly Father's hand. We have assurance. Paul wrote to the Romans that, that I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, or things to come, nor height nor depth, or any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's that kind of assurance that he's offering here to the persecuted church at Smyrna. It's a short, but it's a very pointed reminder to them of his eternality and the temporal nature of suffering. It's so easy for us to lose sight of the big picture. If you get bogged down in details and you focus on what the latest thing is that is difficult to face, persecution, whatever, and you take your eyes off the Lord, that's a problem. And it's not going to be comfortable. But how easy do we do that as human beings? When, when we're hungry, it seems like everything else leaves our mind except thinking about the desire to have something to eat. Our stomach is growling. We're uncomfortable. We want something to eat. We're hungry. When we're sleepy, when we're tired, when we need rest, it seems like that's all that's on our mind. Nothing else is that important at the moment. We just need rest. When we get really good news, that's all that's on our mind. When it's bad news, our mind fixates on that. And we're thinking about it constantly. 
We can't hardly go to sleep. We, we're not, we may lose our appetite. We may not want to talk about anything else. Because our mind is fixated on something. It's the same way with when we're suffering difficulty. And for this church, it was hard for them to focus anywhere else except their present circumstances. It was hard for them. The church at Smyrna had been dwelling upon their suffering. And they had not been dwelling on Christ. I would say to our generation, we're focused on a whole lot of different things. Our focus is all over the place. And kind of going back to the criticism that he had at the church of Ephesus, he said, you've left your first love. Your focus is not on me anymore. It's not on uh, the place where it should be. And in a roundabout way, but in a much nicer way, he kind of tells the church at Smyrna the same thing. Not as pointed, it's not as direct, and it's said in a much more loving way. But he's basically saying, you know, you guys have gotten off focus. And you're suffering because of it. You're making your own persecution worse by not accepting God's remedy for it. And that is to dwell upon the encouragement that only Christ can offer. How wonderful is that? To know that no matter what happens, all we have to do is go right back to God's promises that have been there all along. Notice with me next, a word of encouragement to the congregation in verses 9 and 10. Jesus assures them that he knows what they're going through. He is a man of many sorrows and acquainted with grief, Scripture tells us. So there wasn't anything that he was going through that was a surprise. There wasn't anything that left Jesus wringing his hands and saying, what do I do? There wasn't anything that caught him off guard. There wasn't anything that left him wondering or seeking the advice of another as to what to do. Why? Because he knew all about it. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. Jesus assures them that he knows exactly what they're going through. Jesus is saying to you this morning, I know what you're going through. And some of you are going through things and difficulties that I know about. And some of you are going through things that I don't know about. But you know who does know about them? God knows. God knows exactly what you're facing. God knows exactly the hurt or pain in your heart. God knows exactly what is uh, keeping you awake at night. Maybe last night, in fact. God knows what's going on. And God cares and He cares deeply about what you're facing. Jesus never tries to tell them that it's not as bad as it seems. He doesn't say, well, you know, this is all in your mind. This is just, you've got um, this stuff kind of magnified and trumped up, and it's really not that bad. He never tells them that. He never says it isn't real. He never says it isn't bad. He just gives them some perspective. You know, as a pastor, I've often been called upon uh, in times of, of death and crisis in people's lives. And you know what? I never tell people. I never go in and say, well, you know, it's not as bad as it seems. <laughs> I never say that because to them it is very bad. Now coming, you know, is a, is from the outside or as a, as a pastor or whatever into the situation, what I'm there for is I can offer them some perspective. I can say to them with confidence and say, you will see your loved one again. 
you will be reunited based on the pages of Scripture and the truth that we find there. You will see them again. You will be with your husband again. You will see your wife again. You will see your child again. You will see your mother, your father again. It's perspective. They're with Jesus now. Jesus comes to the church at Smyrna and he's saying to them, here's the reality of the situation. Keep it all in perspective. Yeah, your suffering is real, but guess what? I'm still on my throne. I'm still in charge. And there won't be anything that happens to you that is greater than what I allow. And through this whole experience, you can be strengthened. There are good things that can grow out of persecution. It's true, it's always happened in history that even though persecution is bad, there are good things that grow out of it. He knew their work. He knew their tribulation. He knew what they were experiencing. The physical poverty, in fact, he says, they were experiencing, even reminding them that they were actually spiritually rich, even though they felt like they were poor, maybe even bankrupt. He says... You're rich. The word tribulation means pressure. He uses the word here. You're going through tribulation, poverty. In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, we read, We must through many tribulations, or we must through much pressure, Enter the kingdom of God. In John chapter 16 and verse 33, Jesus spoke, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have pressure, and a lot of it. But be of good cheer, he says, I have overcome the world. You're going to have a lot of pressure in the world. Everything is going to feel like it's closing in on you, in fact. But he says, be of good cheer, be encouraged, be excited, knowing that I have overcome the world. Notice the harsh word in verse 9. Those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is a shocking statement. And it's a, it, it is affirming that those Jews who rejected Christ were just as much followers of Satan as the pagan idol worshipers. He even uses the word blasphemy in this passage, which is in very strong term, usually reserved for those that are actively hostile in their words and their deeds against God. This was severe. This was a big deal. This was saying something huge to compare some Jews to that. Unbelieving Jews were regularly known to chime in with the pagans, accusing Christians of several things. And this is well attested to in history. But... The pagans, along with unbelieving Jews, accused Christians of, among other things, cannibalism. Because 
They would hear a little bit of information and not really understand it, especially in spiritual terms, and they would kind of take it and they would run with it and let the rumors run wild. Where they got that from, it was a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper. Jesus said what? Take and eat. This is my body. Drink this. Drink ye all of it. This is my blood which is shed for you. As he instituted the Lord's Supper and as the early church practiced the Lord's Supper, it became known about about the, the land amongst the pagans and the unbelieving Jews that Christians were guilty of cannibalism. They were also accused of immorality. As the early church had a practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss. And you can imagine where they took that. And again, this is well attested to in many historical writings of the period. They were accused of breaking up homes because there grew chaos in many households. When one spouse became a believer or a Christian and the other remained not a follower. They were accused of political disloyalty because they would not bow down to Caesar. They were even accused of inciting insurrections against the government. And one of the strangest of all is that they were accused of atheism. Imagine that, Christians being accused of atheism. And here's why. In this, this world, people were used to worshiping gods that they could see. They had statues and carvings and this kind of thing. They had altars to various gods. But Christians worshipped a God that could not be seen. And so, they were not worshipping the gods that could be seen and supposedly worshipping one that was not seen. Therefore, in the twisted mind and thinking of the pagans and the unbelieving Jews of the period, Christians were viewed as atheists, not even believing in God or a true God or a God that could be seen. With hopes to destroy the Christian faith altogether, some of Smyrna's wealthy, influential Jews reported these blasphemous false allegations to the Romans. These haters of the gospel were referred to as a synagogue of Satan, meaning that they literally assembled themselves together to strategize and to plan how that they might do what was, according to Christ's own interpretation, the will of Satan. Now, they wouldn't have seen it that way. They would have just seen that the Christians were a problem and they wanted to get rid of the problem. But Jesus hits the nail on the head when he says they're actually a synagogue of Satan and they're strategizing of how that they might undermine the work that I'm trying to do. In Smyrna, the hostile Jewish population poisoned public opinion against Christians. Persecution against the church at Smyrna reached its peak about 50 or so years after this letter was written. With the execution of the aged pastor of the church at Smyrna, Polycarp. The unbelieving Jews played a huge role in his death. Polycarp writes extensively. If you study early church history, his name comes up a lot. Polycarp 
writes extensively about knowing the Apostle John. When he was a young man and when John was an old man, he evidently got to know John very well. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells of how Polycarp was martyred in A.D. 155 at the age of 86. He was brought before the Roman proconsul and basically he was asked, Will you renounce your faith in Christ and your Christianity? And he said, I will not. And so they directed, redirected and said, Even if we throw you to wild beasts, will you not spare your own life? And he said he would not. He refused to renounce his faith. And he offered one of the most famous quotes from antiquity. As he stood before the proconsul, he said these words. He said, Eighty and six years have I served the Lord Jesus. He has been faithful to me. How can I now be faithless to him and blaspheme the name of my Savior? Even under the threat of being thrown to wild beasts, he calmly replied that he would not. Ultimately, Polycarp died by being burned at the stake. His dying words were these. O Lord God Almighty, Father of the blessed and beloved Son, Jesus Christ, I thank you for giving me this day and this hour that I may be numbered among your martyrs to share the cup of Jesus and to rise again to life everlasting. The tribulation or the pressure against the church went on for several decades. The ten days that is mentioned here in our text is seen by some as being figurative, signifying a short period. And of course, in the bigger scheme of things, they wouldn't have seen it this way uh, from, from living through that time, through those decades. But looking back from our perspective, we can see, well, it was a relatively short period of time in their history. Others have said that it's, it, that's not really what it means. They would say uh, that the ten days refers to uh, pockets of short periods. In fact, ten uh, short periods. Like in, not so much ten consecutive days, but ten individual days. But the point is... Uh, that we can definitely see from this, whichever of those uh, is really what is trying to be conveyed, is that the tribulation in the bigger scheme of things wasn't going to be uh, long-lasting. It was going to come kind of in waves, as we know from history, that it did come that way. And there were periods of somewhat calm in the midst of it all. But for a long period of time, perhaps equal to the average lifetime or lifespan of someone, maybe even longer, there was enormous persecution against the church where Christians were regularly fed to wild beasts for, for almost for sport, while in the amphitheater, uh, crowds, thousands of peoples would gather and to watch it take place. We think about, in our day and time, some of the gory movies that people watch and are entertained by this sort of thing. Well, that's nothing new. People were entertained by that kind of stuff 
going even back to ancient times. The last part of verse 10 speaks of what's called a martyr's crown. The word martyr basically means witness. This is a special reward or it's a special crown that is received by some. Those who literally die or lay down their life for their faith. Verse 11 goes on to say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. What a tremendous word of encouragement for us and for all generations. Uh, The words of Revelation chapter 4 and verse 10. Well, notice finally, there is a promise to this congregation in verse 11. Faithful overcomers need not fear death because earthly death is going to happen one way or another. Some people act as though they're going to live forever right here on this earth. And I think think it's true. I think some people don't believe they're ever going to die. There's really no good explanation for their behavior unless they believe that they were going to live forever. Forever, right here on this earth. Why else would some people do some of the things they do? And work so hard uh, building more or less earthly or temporal empires. Many people, I'm convinced, don't really and truly believe they're ever going to leave this world. But death is coming for all. Death is a reality of life. It's a reality of sin. Sin brought death into the world. And only Jesus Christ has taken death away. The first death is experienced by all. All people will die someday. All of us will die someday apart from the Lord coming back. And if we're blessed enough to be in that generation that sees the Lord return and to to be raptured out of this world. But apart from that, no one will leave this world Apart from earthly death. Death is a doorway. It's either an entryway into eternal life, joy, happiness, peace. Or it is a doorway into eternal damnation. Eternal pain. Eternal misery. Eternal suffering. It is the second death. This second death is what awaits Unbelievers. No believer will experience the second death. The overcomer will suffer no loss whatsoever. There's a promise to believers who are faithful. To all who are faithful. He points out in verse 10 a promise. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Death. For Christians, there's only one deliverance from the second death, and that's an experience with Christ. He even says that we're rich because of the things of Christ. He points out to them back in verse 9, and he's saying the same thing to us You are rich. You are rich. Jesus said to us, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
But he says, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I go, I'll bring you unto myself, that there you may be with me also. We are rich. Our destiny is to live in a mansion. Our destiny is to walk on streets of gold. Our destiny is to experience the gates made of pearls. To live eternally with the one who conquered death once and for all. Whereas the destiny of the unredeemed, the lost of this world, those who uh, are, are pagans, those who follow Satan either knowingly or unknowingly, is eternal condemnation separated from God in a place that the Bible describes as hell, a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. Jesus gave words of encouragement to this Smyrna church in the midst of what must have seemed like a dark and difficult time. But you know, God's perspective is always different than man's unless man's is aligned with God's. Man's natural inclination is not to be hopeful. And many of the things that cause man even to be hopeful today are offering only false hope. If you have more money, you'll be happy. If you have this land, you'll be happy. If you have this new car, if you have this new appliance, if you go on this vacation, you'll be happy. And it's all false hope. Just designed to get your money. But the kind of hope that the Lord offers is not a false hope. It's a true hope. It's a genuine hope. It's real. God's perspective was different than their own, and it's often different than our own when it comes to any form of suffering. Someone has said, it's not the load you carry that breaks you down. It's the way that you carry it. Even in the darkest and most difficult hours of our lives or anyone's life, God is still alive and well, and suffering persecution of any kind is really small potatoes compared to the eternal bliss that awaits us, our eternal home in heaven. Don't waste your time fearing or worrying about death. Only make sure you avoid the second death. That's the most important admonition of all. Make good and sure you avoid the second death. God loved this church in Smyrna, and He loves us so much that He offers us these words of encouragement today. You have encouragement today because you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Is He the master of your life? Are you following Him today? You can begin a new relationship with Him. By trusting Him, by stepping out in faith right here in this place this morning. Saying, Lord, I'm tired of trying to do things my own way. It's getting me nowhere. And I know I am going to die someday just like everybody else. But what I want to avoid most of all is that second death. I want to know and I want to have the assurance that when I die, I'll spend all of eternity with you, Lord Jesus, in heaven. Is that your prayer this morning? Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, as we bow our hearts before you, we give you thanks for all things. Father, even the things that we don't understand, 
And we pray, Lord, for those being persecuted right now all around the world. Even the ones, even the Christians in Iraq that have even been on the news this week. And Father, for so many others that we haven't heard about and we probably won't hear about, but all around the world, in Africa and in Asia and in South America and in Europe, all around our globe, Father, people are struggling and suffering because they proclaim the name of Christ. We just ask today, Father, that as persecution seems to be mounting, even here in America, that we would be resolved to live faithfully for You and to stand firmly upon the principles of Your Word and not flee in the face of persecution and run away scared because our minds are filled with doubts. Give us assurance to walk with You. Father, maybe here this morning there's someone who would say, I'm not sure if I were to die, if I would actually spend eternity with you, Lord Jesus, in heaven. Maybe today there's someone here who would step out in faith and say, I want to know Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt That I'll never experience the second death. I know the day will come I'll experience death. But help me avoid the second death. Father, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, draw them today by the convicting power of your Holy Spirit to begin life anew with you. Maybe there are other needs. Maybe for church membership, recommitment, special service. Or just to speak with you privately and personally, Father, at the altar. Whatever the needs are, Father, we pray that you would meet them here today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.